Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Ranching Reboot Podcast, Episode 42. So hello, Philip. How are you? Hey, been a while. (laughs) Yeah, it has, man. You look good. Um, I was gonna. I was thinking that was Grass Fed Exchange 2019, right? Yeah. Out there, the the legendary Grass Fed Exchange of 2019, out there in beautiful California. Uh, CK, have you met Philip? I, you know, I was at that same Grass Exchange, but I I don't think we've met personally. So it's nice to meet you, Philip. Nice to meet you. So Philip is. uh, I brought Philip on the show today to talk about the carnivore bar and uh, yeah, well, it's a, uh, we'll do video in season two. We're working on that still, but uh, I, I do love the signs. Great marketing. Um, I was going through some of your social media, man. You're just, it looks like you're killing it. So why don't you uh, just give us a brief overview of what the carnivore bar is and, and we can kind of start to unpack some of it. So the carnivore bar is uh, this food is old as time. It's pemmican. It's a Native American food uh, to make meat shelf stable. So, you know, it's, it's integrally related to what uh, ranchers do. You know, they raise the most nutritious food in the planet. And uh, the only problem is it's, it's highly perishable. So the whole processing and logistics of getting it to the customer is always the, the biggest issue. And um, modern techniques include a lot of chemicals and a lot of, uh, you know, different hermectants or drying agents uh, that don't always sit very well with people's diets and their, their lifestyle. So it turns out long time ago, probably before recorded history, people were figuring this out and just making their beef really, really dry, sun dried, ground with mortar and pestle, and then you know, a cast iron pot rendering the tallow by hand. I mean, it must have taken weeks, <laughs> but uh, they did it. And um, it became a, a really important commodity before refrigeration um, was available. People out in the wilderness uh, didn't always have successful hunts, didn't always have successful foraging. If right. you can't find food, it's, it's good to pack some, a backup plan. For sure. It, it, just a note on that, even, even some of the most successful predators in the wild only have about a 10% success rate on a hunt. So, you know, if you're out there one out every four years and you manage to get your deer, feel better. You're probably doing on average better than the mountain lions doing, you know, per hunt. <laughs> That's a good point. It's a good point. There's a silver lining. So at pocket meat, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a piece of meat you can put in your pocket and walk around with all day and take it out when you want to eat it. Yeah. And so the key of pemmican uh, back in the day is the same key now. It's getting it dry enough. You know, if it's wet, it's extremely perishable. You know, and it 
and what we do with our jerky is we don't dry it all the way. We add a bunch of chemicals to it and preservatives. So that way it's moist enough that our weak jawed modern uh, consumers can eat it. Uh, because if you make jerky at home and you get it all the way dry, you're in for a Terrible. workout. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so yeah, you, sounds like you've done that. Yes, that sounds good because I was like, I made jerky once and it was it was exactly what you just described and that makes sense. But I was like, it's nothing like the jerky you get that's, you know, in the discount aisle or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now, now I know why. Mine's actually the, the more supreme product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so making something that you can actually eat, um, you know, because you imagine drying with a big hunk. Like if you took a whole roast and you wanted to dry it, you could, it would take a long time. You might have to put holes in it to, to get the moisture from the middle out, but. Or slice it really, really thin. Well, yeah, that would be. But it doesn't take all day. Yeah. If you slice it really thin, that would make it easy to eat. So then it'd be like chips. But um, the problem is just, is just eating it. It's just like, if you, if you make it too thick, and this is the reason why you wouldn't yeah. do it besides time, is that you, you can't bite down on it. And it's like you want it to be all the way dry if you want it to be shelf stable. And so hence the mortar and pestle, which is basically like a stone bowl and then a yeah. stone smasher. And you just, you just. That's what I have to do with like spices. Yeah. Just like that then. Yeah. It's like, it's, so you're just, you're just really drying it out. A yeah, lot, it. Grinding it up kind of to a powder or to, you know, a, a granular, like, a, are you looking for a specific granular size? Yes. Yeah, that that's taking a long time to get right. Okay, so, and, and we're probably getting way into the weeds, and you don't have to don't have to say anything. But but then that's when you add the tallow tallow back, right? Yeah. So the energy component, um, pioneers found out the hard way uh, with rabbit starvation that you can't just eat protein. So rabbit starvation is a phenomenon where they couldn't find big game. They were out like on the Oregon Trail, you know, trying to make a new life for themselves or come from where there's too many people to where there's there's opportunity and uh if they don't lose the big game um they lose that fat uh you can't survive off of the just the lean protein um so you need either carbohydrate or fat so fat is included in animals so if you if you're hunting animals it's like the, it comes with fat you have to go forage the berries or grow a fruit fruit forest um and that's a long-term commitment. Uh, but if you're just hunting and you render the fat, then you can make a portion equal to the fat shelf stable if you dry it out and then mix it together. It actually helps seal the protein even better with the, the lipids and the fat. They seal it from the oxygen. Okay. That makes sense. And they make it edible. You can bite into it. So it can be a, a bar, but you know it's not going to break your teeth. Right. Now I've, I've had them. I actually backed you guys on Kickstarter and you sent me a box and, oh, nice. and I think it was just about a year ago. I just went out to check the mail randomly and in the mailbox, there's another huge box of carnivore bars. Um, I, I feel a little bit guilty that since you're on a show, I haven't had any sense. Um, they were good. I, I'm, I'm going to say I like them, mm -hmm. but they're not, they're not real high on my preference. Like the, oh, yeah. they taste good, but it's not like, 
it's not like you're going to expect out of a meat product. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about uh, about some of your taste and texture? Like a mouthfeel thing? Is that what you're saying, Brian? Uh, you've never had one, have you, CK? Oh, you guys need to send me some. I get well, no above. I'll, I'll send you both some of the new the new stuff. So what we have now is much yeah. improved. Yeah. So do have, you ever like reconstitute any of it? Like, does do people do that? Reconstitute? What do you mean? Like, add water to it. <laughs> oh no, no, I no, don't need to. No. I have heard of people um, who melt it down and turn it as in like a a physical like bone broth or oh, yeah, base yeah. or yeah. like stroganoff. It's perfect delicious. for that. Yeah, yeah. If you don't, if you don't particularly like it. You can always use it as a base and you can make whatever you're eating a lot, uh, a lot better for you with all those fat soluble vitamins and all the amino acids that you need. It's like, it is essentially uh, a food, you know, by a soldier. So it's, I had function in mind. I went to Afghanistan and got terribly sick because I was eating a bunch of preservatives and I was on antibiotics to prevent malaria. Now I'm grateful. I don't have malaria. I'm grateful. I didn't die. Uh, but I kind of got dysbiosis. So kind of wrecked me for the last decade. Dys, dysbiosis? What, what is that? So you have a microbiome that helps you digest your food. And right. the microbiome is a lot of woo at this point because humanity just isn't, we're just not sophisticated enough to know how all that works. It's a complex relationship between your environment, the things you're eating, and the frequency of your eating them. And then we don't know exactly which species are optimal for you. We have a list and we're, we're saying, well, these ones are probably good, but they work in synergy with a complex ecosystem that's changing every seven days. And we're not exactly sure all the species that should. And so what they do in medicine is they just take the poop from a healthy person, and put it in the unhealthy person. Sometimes they magically get better. But that's yeah. that's hardly advanced science. That's that's a lot of guess and check. It, it's mm-hmm. talking about like tran- trying to transplant the gut microbiome from one person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they couldn't like, paddle too, room and diving and stuff. So yeah, just the the microbiome of the saliva, right? I I think well, Matt Cleffer said it. I think that was on uh, thirty one that we're all just big walking bags of microbes. Like for, for some reason, we're this, this giant bipedal walking bag of microbes that has developed the ability to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a, I got really sick eating preservative laden food. And so um, just to kind of wrap it back, cause you asked about the texture and the taste and it is yeah. a pretty plain bar. Um, the reason it's plain is a lot of those preservatives mess with the microbiome. If that preservative is working outside the body, it also works inside the body. Right. Because they're, they're durable chemicals. And some of them are not very natural. So they're safe, but are they optimal? And if you're sick, you want to you wanna pull out all the stops. You want all the advantages you have. You don't want any disadvantages. So when I got sick, I was looking at uh, eating a cleaner diet. And um, I pulled out everything but uh, greens and meat. And it basically didn't work. So something was still cut, holding me back. So I went on this weird all meat diet, carnivore diet. I know when we met at carnivore client, you give me big eyebrows. 
<laughs> when I said that to you, Brian. That was, was like literally the first time I'd ever heard anybody say, yeah, I only eat meat. I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, that's a I'm thing. Not, <laughs> I'm not recommending it to anyone. I'm not a health expert. This is just what I did. It helped me, um, but I couldn't take it on the go. So I had this problem with making this healthy food that's basically everything you need, but nothing you don't. And so a lot of people, we're used to this hyper palatable environment where everything tastes like mouth explosion, excitement. Um, but a lot of that's done through really, really cheap chemicals. So if you, uh, yeah, yeah. So if you that that way, <laughs> sorry. Yep. No, no, there's a little delay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, you're good. Okay, so like if you create a muffin and you go to your kitchen, you get all like whole ingredients, like you make the, the best muffin you could possibly imagine. And then you, uh, then you wanna, you know, you wanna take it to the big time. You wanna mass produce it. The very first thing the food scientist is gonna say is like, how can we make it taste mostly like your muffin, but make it out of total crap? So that we have a profit margin. And it's like, they just look at you like, we wanna, we wanna find the cheapest thing that tastes like 80% is good. And so they'll, they'll make a muffin for 15 cents, sell it for a dollar and 15 cents. And then they have this awesome margin, but it's like so many people are doing that, that we just live in like this nutritive desert where there's nothing, there's nothing wholesome to eat. And certainly nothing wholesome that actually has any shelf life. Because it's just too much trouble. Right. And if it has a shelf life, that means it doesn't decay, which means it's been stabilized by all sorts of preservatives and pasteurization processes. And it's not it's not a product that's going to be very highly bioavailable in, in any stretch of imagination because it it can't it's not decaying. Like it's yeah, decay is part of life. It is part of the cycle of life is is decay. If it's bioavailable. Like if you, your body could absorb it, then microbes could start breaking it down. Detritivores is what breaks down dead bodies. It's like, it is a whole class of, of different species, a whole cascade of species that start breaking down um, anything that dies in the wild. So it's a conundrum. So how do you make something shelf stable, you know, with that in mind? It's like, you really have to look to our past. And a lot of, uh, a lot of, at least in the European tradition, uses uh, something called hermectants, which is like salt curing, smoking, um, sugar cured ham, you know, all these traditional spices like pepperoni, salami, charcuterie, like there are these certain concoctions. They dry it, they age it, smoke it, and they add these um, substances that pull out all the water. Like salt is the obvious one. You know, have you ever heard of salted fish? Oh yeah. Yeah. Salted, salted fish, salted pork, uh, salted, salted cod. Salted, salted cod, cod yeah. huge, huge commodity back in the day. It, it, it ran like whole nations cared about, you know, the supply of salted cod. It's like, if you eat salted cod, I mean, it's not a pleasant experience. Hemican is 10 times more pleasant than salted fish. It's, <laughs> it, it's drying in a way it just can't explain. It's, you know, and that's that's what makes it uh, both bioavailable, um, but also preserved. Is there's got to be a catch, and so the catch for the carnivore bar is, I mean, it's largely the cost. It's very expensive to make pemmican. It's very labor intensive, and the 
the parameters of success are are such that there's a lot of uh you have to have a lot of barriers to oxygen and moisture right so what they used to do is they used to put a rawhide bag full of pemmican they make little balls of it pack it in and then seal it with tallow on the top and then sew it together so when you're ready to break into it it's it's airtight it's sealed with the tallow Exactly. So that tallow that's on the outside is oxidizing, but just, just so it's on top is oxidizing. The, the pemmican underneath is sealed tight because they didn't have plastic. You know, that's very, very modern. So, but this, the principles remain true. It's oxygen and moisture. There's always a catch. If you want real food that's bioavailable and therefore nourishing to your body, there's gotta be a catch. There's either a hermectant, there's a, a physical barrier there's something that keeps it that way right and you know and and in your case you've got to you mix it with the tallow to help provide that protection you've got a really robust wrapper that's one of the things i i noticed is yeah your wrapper is super robust and it, it's almost like a mylar balloon <laughs> it's yep yeah. it, it really is and it's very expensive but so it's a bare minimum though because if we've done this thing right um it could last pemmican rumored to last like 50 years so it's almost indefinitely uh shelf stable or completely unshelf stable it's just meat <laughs> it's complete like maybe a week <laughs> or forever <laughs> yeah you were talking about uh your little muffins anecdote with the uh, food science yeah that got me thinking about something mike calicrate said you know it wasn't animal husbandry that put that pig in a crate. It was animal science. It was animal science that built that feedlot. It was animal science that built that chicken house, not animal husbandry. And it's food science that tells us to make it as cheaply as possible so we can mass produce it, maximize our, maximize our profits. I, I feel you. It's just kind of an interesting parallel that, uh, that just popped into my head. I'm, I'm struggling. Like, I mean, my, my logo is a cave painting, so you can kind of get where I'm going to line up on this, but I love science, but I think that there's a, there's a hierarchy and ancestral wisdom and principles have to come first. It's like science is to support ancestral wisdom, not to uh, supplant it. I don't think that our mastery uh, is sufficient to just ignore what all of our ancestors have been doing for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. It, they knew what they were doing. I mean, they made us. <laughs> I mean, they, got they, had, they had to be pretty smart to exist without having the the entire sum of the world's knowledge available in the supercomputer you put in your pocket. Yeah. And if you look at it from an anthropology point of view, uh, in the last, you know, 10, 12,000 years, the modern period, modern history, um, it hasn't really been working out for us physically, physically or mentally, like, or even fertility. What like fertility rates are down and our brain size is shrinking and, you know, we're, we're shorter, we're smaller, we're weaker than we once were. It's like, it might be that our, our understanding of agriculture and food and our advanced uh, science has kind of gotten into the territory of arrogance and hubris. It, you've got personal experience 
with that, with your time in the army and, and getting ill, uh, get finding the carnivore diet and getting better again. Let's, let's talk about that some more. Like, sure. I, I know you lost like a ton of weight, like. Well, it wasn't you, that much. It was like 30, 40 pounds. Well, That's I mean, <laughs> 40 pounds on a guy your size is a lot, Philip. <laughs> Thanks. I'm not very tall. <laughs> But you know, I, I remember you know I, I went back through some of your social media and you know it seems like since you got on the carnivore diet and started working on the carnivore bar that you know your health's improved. I remember from talking to you a couple of years ago that you know you, you're got more mental energy, more clarity, more focus. Um, yeah, talk about everything, it. Almost everything. So uh, hunger, mood, um, resilience, like. People don't think about it as a performance metric, but just like your ability to handle a curveball, your patience, like what's going to set you off anxiety wise, like everything is just calmer. Like when I got off sugar, um, that was the really big change for me when I wasn't doing carbohydrates uh, at all. Um, but the last, the last leg for me was, was vegetables for whatever reason. And people just are guessing like crazy online about what has made us weird like this, that this diet helps us, um, you know, autoimmune, uh, allergies, uh, weird reactions to proteins in plants. Um, but it really seemed herbicide buildup in yeah. the body from eating, from eating it for decades. I mean, it, 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 I'll, I'll probably catch hell for saying that, but I said it. I don't know. I really don't know. I won't, I won't BS. It's like, but for whatever reason it worked. And so I could think, uh, I'm clear headed, um, skin issues resolved. I lost a bunch of weight. I feel really good. Uh, and I felt like ready to tackle this entrepreneurial dream that I had. So, you know, I would not have had the motivation, the perseverance and the mental acuity to hang in there through all the different challenges that being a CEO has brought. So, you know, I feel really lucky and blessed to have found something that works for me. And, you know, I wish everyone else the best of luck, whatever they eat, you know, whatever you're doing, I think you could look back to our ancestry and find something that's, that will keep you healthy, that, you know, works for you. For sure. So where do you source your, uh, where do you source your product from? Good question. I am sourcing from Joyce Farms primarily. Joyce Farms in North Carolina. So it's uh, Aberdeen Angus, um, which I guess I've been told by competitors that that doesn't really mean anything, all Angus or Aberdeen. But <laughs> what, um, what Joyce means by that is that they have found um, an older <laughs> variant. So yeah. what? They're smaller structured, right? Aberdeen? Cattle? Yeah, but it it fattens really well on grass. Yeah, only grass, which is the whole point. They're doing regenerative agriculture, um, and they found a, an older version, hundreds of years old. That they are, they're really, really um, trying to get that, you know, that program, and they're trying to grow. Um, twenty twenty was a little rough. Uh, a lot of restaurants were closing for whatever reason. And uh, so they, they specialized in the, 
East Coast restaurants. They're like, they're really important, like the flavor. So the version of the carnivore bar that you had 2019 was, was really just a prototype. It was, you know, a Hail Mary. Like, I think I can do this. Um, what I have now is like crunchy, flaky, creamy. Like it's, it's actually really good. Uh, people off the street who don't, who don't care about impressing me actually say they like it. Um, that was not true about the first one. That was not true. <laughs> so there's been some growth. You, you but, probably um, had to take a little bit of uh, criticism in the in the early days, first year oh, yeah. boxes. But it's the breed of the cattle that actually affords the flavor. Like whenever you dry something, you're concentrating that flavor. And you yeah. know, jerky, if you dry it all the way, kind of it kind of loses some of its its flavor. But if you add the fat back in in the pemmican, it's it's full flavor, like you're eating a steak. Um. So if, if it's a really like uh, grass-fed and really high omega-3 fish that's been uh, kind of cultivated to promote high omega-3, it tastes fishy. And then you concentrate that flavor. Mm -hmm. And it tastes exactly like you're thinking it tastes. It's like a 3D-old uh, fish market that needs a good scrub. It's like, that's not what I want. anywhere near that sort of a product. No, and so I that's- hope you don't have plans to expand into fish. <laughs> no fish bars, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that the flavors and the all the different properties of the beef affect the flavor. So it might be interesting science experiment to have that much omega-3, but I have to think that if it's oxidizing and smelling rancid like that, that those PUFAs really, they really aren't stable enough. A PUFA is a polyunsaturated fatty acid. And so okay. beef, especially grass-fed, has lots of, has steric acid, like 20% steric acid. But grain-fed beef has no steric acid. But the majority is uh, palmetic, like 40% palmetic acid. And that's the same. Okay, explain. Then, can you explain this to me like I'm five <laughs> I think I've already, I've already started down with too many big words. So <laughs> when you uh, finish a cow uh, and I don't, you guys are the experts here, but uh, the science or the theory behind what you guys do as ranchers is the finishing 180 days at the end. Um, right. If you do uh, grain, some people do corn, some people do crazy stuff like molasses or whatever is putting on as much weight as possible, they induce a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the cattle. And so that kind of blows out the liver, but it's great for the intramuscular fat and marbling that makes the meat so tender and, and kind of mild. It makes the flavor more mild. And so- I'm not gonna let you skip over that fact that you just said that feeding them grain gives them liver disease. <laughs> non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which is probably why we can't find beef liver in a supermarket anywhere. Well, it's nasty. It's full of lesions. It's gross. Yeah. I would really recommend like uh, the debate. I, I serve both grass fed and grain fed uh, bars. I try not to pick sides. I may have to pick one eventually um, because it's the converting back and forth is hard, but I try not to be dogmatic or ideological. I just try to, serve the need and, yeah 
and and stay out of the politics of it. But uh, you know, it helps to be well versed in the science. And so, the finishing on grass is hard because if you're paying by weight and the cow is getting fat on grass, well, it's an older animal for one. Like it takes a lot longer, and so you know, there's really no demarking before the uh, the finishing. Um, it's all just grass from beginning to end, but the amount of care you have to take for the soil and the rotation of that animal, the, it increases the complex, complexity astronomically. If you're trying to get a good yield from that cow, it needs to eat healthy grass. It needs to eat thick, lush grass and, you know, just a poundage that we can't, we as humans, it's like, this is a salad from hell. It's just never ending. It's like a dump truck full of salad. Buckets and buckets of a salad. (laughs) They eat all day. They eat all day. And so, you know, if you have a scraggly little patch of dirt with a couple of weeds in it, that's not going to yield a a fat calf, uh, a fat cow on, on that kind of finishing program. Like you, you have to really, really take care of it. Yeah. Like your picture, that's beautiful. You know, it, uh, there's this beautiful amber waves of, of grass. It's just amazing in uh, Brian's picture there. You know, it, I, I, while you're looking at this picture, you know, I've always liked your logo because it's got a horned cow on it. Yeah. I mean, horned cows matter. Well, yeah, this is actually, do you see how the, the horns draw in? In and up, yeah. Yeah, it, it's modeled after, it's a cave painting, so it's not anthropomorphically correct, but it's a, an artist's rendition of an arc. Horns are hard to draw. They're really, really hard to draw. Well, no, it's, it's done intentionally. The auroch is the cave painting 50,000 years ago in the uh, Scow, France. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, it's one of the oldest cave paintings of mankind is of a cow. And of this kind of cow that is now extinct. Right. And the aurochs, like a lot of modern continental breeds, are descended from the auroch. And when did the auroch go extinct? It's It's been 1,000, 1,500 years at least. I think there was, a, there was a close relative, something that was pretty close to an auroch. Um, or maybe um, it's only like 500 years. Even a few hundred years ago. Yeah. Well history is not the the near history is not what i'm looking at i'm looking at like our ancient history because the idea is that the original human diet whatever it was is maybe something that we're only getting slightly close to like we may not be able to actually eat what our ancestors ate because all the vegetables and all the fruit that we've hybridized ten thousand years ago didn't exist broccoli looked like a weed carrots were this big, uh, you know, all our fruit was tiny. And, yeah, the cavemen yeah. were working on trying to figure out how to grow that stuff because they got tired of chasing aurochs around with spears. <laughs> yeah, and if they're not, uh, you know, the wild ones are, are 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 still fully intact and quite dangerous, from what I hear. <laughs> yeah, you know, coyotes think twice going up to mess with a cow that's got you know two foot of spear on each side of their head imagine wolves would think about the same thing and, and the, were big like they were they were way bigger than modern cows yeah and if, if they, it still has uh, all its parts it's hormonally whole uh they can also be uh, aggressive and scary 
there are there are wild bulls in uh Australia that I've heard about that are like kind of get an idea of what it might have been like. It's like, oh, that's that's kind of a different thing than our like, our cows. Was it, uh, water buffalo in Africa can be really aggressive too. Yeah, like, I, I've seen like, videos of water buffalo like going in to save another water buffalo, like to chase off six lions. I'm like, that's brave. Yeah, they, they're in, they're an intense and incredible animal. It's like we we kind of. Uh, take them for granted a little bit with their domestication and, you know, all our ways of keeping it safe and calm and nice. It's like, we kind of forget like how intense it must've been in the wild. And so, I mean, that was, that's kind of the, the idea with the cave painting is to go back. Uh, but also with my supplier and Joyce, it it's finding that ancestral, like the ratio of like the protein, the fat, the, amino acids, the high quality soils, which lead to high quality meat because of the minerals and the vitamins that are in the soil affect the minerals and vitamins that are in the cow. And so, you know, it's this holistic way of looking. It's like, maybe we don't know everything about what we should be eating because what we seem to be eating as modern people seems to be making us sick. It seems like the flashier the package and the brighter the claims, the worse that crap is for you. Like if the, if the ingredients part of the label is more than maybe three lines long, maybe you should put that back. Yeah. Yeah. What, so uh, what are the ingredients in the carnivore bar? Like what, what's the, what's the longest label you've got longest ingredients line you've got beef, tallow, salt. Didn't you have one with honey? <laughs> That's one that we're not going to continue. Probably it's a limited release with honey. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but I can send you some before they were out. Uh, I had one. I think I had one. Did you? Uh, the box you sent, uh, like the box you sent me last year. I think I had, I think there was a couple of honeys in there. I remember, I remember seeing the honey bee sticker on, on a bar. Last year. So. That was around January, February, maybe. I guess it was earlier this year. Yeah, it was this year. It, yeah, they're kind of blurring together. <laughs> it's march 20 it's like pandemic you know, everything from post rona is just the calendar is almost irrelevant sometimes. it's a two-year one-year period right <laughs> it's the long it's the longest two weeks in history yeah so not doing honey anymore you've got a grass-fed variety grain-fed variety i might any other plans i might do a honey i might do it it's it's one of those things where, you know, how many flavors could you make? It's like thousands. It's like, what, right. what would sell? What would be, what would be on brand? And so, oh, you want a teriyaki flavor? You want a spicy sweet flavor? You want a flaming hot flavor? You want uh, a barbecue flavor? Uh, <laughs> right? right now, right now we're four people. So the carnivore bar is four people um, and we're doing everything. So we're, you know, we just sold out, like, I mean, we've been almost perpetually sold out all, all summer and fall. So Selling we, as much as you can make and not, not being able to keep inventory. We literally, two weeks, we just, we just stopped taking, stopped taking orders for any price. And then, uh, wow. then we had to increase our, our prices just to, so we could keep up with the Kickstarter. Cause we did a Kickstarter, like, uh, to see if people wanted us to do a honey bar. And uh, so we did Kickstarter one 
in, uh, at the grass-fed exchange um, and launched with the carnivory con. And so all the people who eat this special way, uh, I was like, well, hey, you, you want to make it? And they said, sure, go ahead, give it your best shot. And so I did. And, um, you know, I was meeting different people uh, at the grass-fed exchange. I actually met Ron Joyce there. And that's where I got that idea. We we're actually talking about uh, the Berkshire uh, pig that yeah. he saved from extinction. Um, there was this breed of pig that was really good on, on in regenerative practice. And it tastes apparently really, really good. I've, I've yet to have one, but it's that genetics conversation that he was having in the lobby with somebody else. So probably somebody really important I shouldn't have been butting in, but I couldn't help myself. I was fascinated and I asked him about it. And, uh, you know, I was wearing this, this shirt with this, this auric on it. And I was like, yeah, genetics is kind of my jam, like trying to go for this ancestral thing. And he's like, well, hey, you know, I'll send you some samples. You can make it out of uh, Joyce Farms. And I was like, sure, let's do it. Right on. How many missed opportunities have we had? in this two week, in this longest two weeks ever of, of not having conference seasons to make yeah. those connections. It, it, yeah. And you know, we met there too. So it's just like, you never know who you're going to bump into. And I was, I was doing a, a little filming for a friend. Yeah. That's so, why you're, that's actually why you're a grass fed exchange. What it, you're there to actually film. So my ticket was to film. Yeah. So, uh, my buddy was doing the filming and so he needed a, a assistant because there were two different tours, one to a dairy farm, one to, um, right. Sonoma. Yeah. There's all these like awesome Hills. Uh, yeah. There's Stimple. the dairy farm tour. And then there was the Stipple Creek ranch and Stimple Sonoma Creek. mountain Institute tour. And that's, yeah. we went on the Sorry. Sonoma mountain and Stimple Creek tour together. Yeah. This, the simple Creek was just absolutely unbelievable though. The rolling Hills and, it, it was just really, really cool. I, I've actually been talking to Lauren Poncha. I'm going to get him on the show. I was just texting with him the other day. He's he's off on a trip right now. Won't be back till next week, but we're going to get Poncha on the show to talk about all the cool stuff he's got going on on Stimple Creek Ranch. He's a great guy, and he's really, really passionate about it. You can really just tell his energy. I really oh, enjoyed uh, his presentation, and I really enjoyed seeing uh, his cattle and uh, his beautiful ranch. From what I understand, like just after we left, it quit raining <laughs> and it didn't look very good. And it really hasn't looked that good ever since. Ah, it was, it was a drizzle. Yeah. But it, it was really, really lush and wet <laughs> when we were there. I was trying to keep my camera dry. I was like, oh no. Yeah. I got, I, then that was the start of the day and I wore my good boots and they were the only boots that I had. It was like nine hours before we got back before I got back to the hotel and got dry shoes and socks. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that day. <laughs> great tour. Great tour of Stipple Creek though. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you were, you were doing some filming and I, I, I snooped your LinkedIn profile. I noticed you have a BA in theater. Yeah. That was before the army. Correct. So well, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I, I'm so, curious how you went from getting, like uh, a, a bachelor's in theater and and doing some fight directing to joining the army. Yeah, so I did um, stunts. I really liked uh, keeping people safe. And um, I graduated in 2009. So 
the financial crisis happened uh, my senior year. And I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in theater in stage combat uh, with zero experience. And so naturally, I became a ditch digger. (laughs) And uh, you became what? A ditch digger. I was digging drainage ditches. Oh, okay. With a very expensive liberal arts degree. I was going to say, it's kind of like, you know, that's the joke. What does the liberal arts major ask at work? You want fries with that? Exactly. Exactly. And that was me. But, you know, there were master's students uh, asking if you wanted fries with that. There were doctorate students uh, doing the, it's like all, so there was a hierarchy. They still are. So I'm, I'm in the ditch. (laughs) So it was one of those things where I was like, man, I need to find, uh, I need to find like a way to support myself. Um, and a journey of which I'm, I'm still searching for to this day. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was my discovery of the human body and health and how little I knew about the human body. And I was telling people to, you know, here, pick up this weapon and pretend to fight. But, you know, send your, cast your energy past them. You're meeting, but don't send it into them. You know, you're, you're, you're doing this like, it's not really a martial art. It's more like a magic trick where you're like, oh, wow, I missed it. It's like, what happened? Oh, and then they're acting hurt. Oh, they must've gotten hurt. It's like, that's a lot of stage combat, especially in theater where you make a noise, a pop, everyone acts, and then a story emerges, which is, has to be a falsehood because you're going to do it again tomorrow night. Right. So you can't actually hurt or bruise or bludgeon the faces of your lead actors because they have to appear in the next scene unbludgeoned and bruised. So keeping people safe was kind of the theme. So financial crashes happened. Uh, There were no internships or jobs in theater unless you were willing to work for free. And free was not what my landlord was charging me for rent. So I went and did a job that I could learn about the human body and that would give me real world experience. So I became a combat medic. So I keep people safe, which was thematically on, you know, vibe with my personality. And then I could get money to go to college, get an advanced degree. I was thinking about physical therapy as a day job, you know, cause it would enhance my coaching clients or actors um, in this fun, fun thing I like to do. Um, doubtful that I'd ever pay, but fun so i have this real real world experience as a combat medic um and then my health just as i'm figuring out about the human body just as i'm trying to get my feet on the ground like get started in life uh my health just takes a nosedive and i spend the next decade trying to figure out what the heck went wrong and i learned a lot of different things about paleo keto uh, all these different uh, food strategies all these different environmental toxins that you can do, but there's so many different rabbit holes, like rabbit trails, like that. It just felt like there's, it's a treacherous field when you're trying to discern what happened to your health. There's so many different vectors that, that your health can be derailed, especially in America. It's one of the. And it's so hard to know what to believe. It's so hard to know who to trust and who to listen to, especially now 
about, you know, things like nutrition and, you know, trust the science. Yeah. I, what, what science? That, go ahead. No, there's science for everything. It contradicts itself. Well, it, just like we were talking about earlier, you know, trust the science, trust the science. You know, that that's that's the line that the educated people like to throw out. Just trust the science. We need to do this. Just trust the science. Well, we trusted the science with, with ivermectin and cattle that destroyed her dung beetles. We figured that out. You know, we, what else have we trusted the science with? You know, we, we trust this, we trust animal science to put cows and CAFOs and pigs in barns and chickens in giant sheds. That's maybe we should start looking at these science-based systems with a little bit more distrust and a little bit more um, criticism. Yeah. And I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with science, but I think that, you know, to borrow some religious language, I think that it's a real mistake to make it your idol, to make science the idol. It's like whatever keeps the animal alive and gets more cash, bigger yield, bigger, better, faster. It's like, um, I think that's the wrong metric of success. It needs to be health, happiness, having a future, being resilient, um, kind of more of a holistic, you know, I, uh, I don't want to just be alive for today. I would like to, you know, tomorrow sounds cool too. Like maybe I could even do several years, stretch them together. Like maybe I could live a healthy, long, happy life that, that isn't just over next week because I want to do all the drugs and, and just burn through my adrenal system until I'm just crashing, um, into a brick wall. It's like, which is what we often do to the, like the accelerants and um, animal science. It's like, we're, we're just trying to get a bigger yield. We're just trying to get more money. It's like, okay, well, a lot of that's water. You know, when I cook, I cook both grass fed, grass finished, and I cook grain. I get way more yield, way more weight from the dried grass fed, grass finished beef. It's like, there's actually more protein in it. Do you think power. that's because they're adding water in the processing in, in the packing plant, or that's just water that's in the fat and in the muscle because of the grain diet? It's in the muscle because those it, muscles aren't really the muscles are bloated with water. Is we so noticed that same exact thing um, with chicken. I hate to say, I hate to admit yeah. it, but we, we did buy some, uh, some chicken from Walmart. Mm. No, it wasn't chicken. It was a, uh, we bought some 8515 that was like a it was like a two and a half pound package of 8515 ground beef from the store. Browned mm -hmm. that up, drained it, weighed it. It lost almost a pound. And you know, we can you throw two pounds of any of the grass-fed, grass-finished stuff that we buy from any of our friends, you brown up two pounds of that, and you've got two pounds of meat. You don't lose, yeah. you know, you're not losing 30% of it. Or, or like one eight seven, you know, you might lose like less than ten percent, a little bit more. It's like it's very small. It it's it's fascinating, and so the yields when you start to scale up, they really make a difference. So I thought I would have um, a big difference in cost for my grass and grain, and that's what all the the people who like grass fed spooey, you know, that's that's silly. Panda massaged, luxury, deluxe, you know, salesmanship. And I was like, um, not really though, because 
the yield is is such that once you dispense with the water, it's not actually that much cheaper, you know, per per pound of dried, you know, and it's like, but it also has no steric acid whatsoever. And steric acid is the the fat that people are really excited about um, that helps you lose weight. It's supposed to be cardioprotective. It's supposed to be really good for you. It only exists in grass fed, grass finished. And it's, it's still a small amount. It's not a huge amount, but it, it, it's a lot in cocoa butter. The reason they think that chocolate might be good for your health is steric acid. And, and it probably has like what, a, a tenth of a percent as much as beef does by weight? Well, that's where it gets ironic. It's, it's actually 60% steric acid. So it is about three times more steric acid per ounce. Really? But it doesn't have any uh, retinol. It doesn't have any uh, the, the fat soluble vitamins in animal fat. So you're, you're getting a, a more uh, beneficial like weight loss effect potentially, um, depending on which uh, philosophy you ascribe to. And th- these are all theories that are not advice. But um, the steric acid is, is one of those metrics that people hunt for. And so that goes away. The omega-3 is completely gone. But even in grass-fed cattle, the omega-3 is pretty small. Like, it, it's pretty scant. It, it's hard to know how much omega-3 uh, you really need because the debate is raging crazy. Right. It's like, well, it seems like ancestrally we, we would eat fresh fish. It's like fish was really easy to catch for humans. We all ate fresh fish and other stuff. Lots of debate on the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they can, they've gone, they can go back and look and, and figure out what a lot of people's ate, but there wasn't a lot of, you know, heavy processed grains and sugars and stuff. Well, yeah, and, and if they ate any vegetables, um, they don't keep. They were seasonal. They, they also ferment them. So then we get into the microbiome conversation again. It's like, well, so we have all these clay pots in these ancient civilizations, and they're, they're, breaking st- they're breaking stuff down, and then they're testing the residue, and they're like, huh, what was in this? And there's almost always everything was fermented, whether it was yogurt, whether it was sauerkraut, whether it was, uh, they made this like goza, this like citrus beer thing. That oh, was yeah. Barely a beer. It was mostly like slightly citrusy water, but that yeah. killed all the bacteria. In it. So, you know, fermenta- fermentation, fermentation is just a slow, like you're just, you're, I get you're letting it rot. You're letting it kind of, you know, decay on purpose to a point and then stopping it. Well, so you're, you're also controlling the environment. So when you do, when you do fermentation, it's not just rotting. It's not just, you know, let nature have it. It is a controlled environment. So for example, when I made sauerkraut, when I was in that part of my journey, um, I was looking for, um, I think plantaris, certain kind of uh, bacteria that is supposed to help you with dysbiosis. So I was like, I researched it, found this species. It's really, really uh, prevalent in sauerkraut. And so then you have to get the salt concentration correct. You have to get it absolutely sterile, clean. So no contaminants, no fungus, because you want bacteria, you don't want the fungus. So the level of clean you have to be is 
it's pretty hardcore. It was a good uh, roundup, you know, warm up round for the carnivore bar because everything in the carnivore bar is really hard too. So sauerkraut, I, I did like, you, I did a water seal around and then you had to salt that inappropriately hot. So there's really salty water in the top. And so microbes that fall in, they can't get through the water and it's not good for microbial growth. But then I, you measure out the salt perfectly so it breaks down the cellulose in the, in the cabbage and so the bacteria can get at it. And when the bacteria get at it, then there's like seven different species and they, they peak, they crest and then the other one peaks and then the next one peaks and then the next one peaks and the next one peaks. And the first three aren't very good for you, but they're not toxic. Then it starts to get unhealthy. Then another one comes and replaces and eats the metabolites of that one. And that one's the one you want. And it's like, well, then it's ready. And your grandma would have just tasted it and known, just, just known. And it's like, how, how do you know that? <laughs> it's like, we can, we can graph it. We can spread chart it. We can do all this stuff. It's like, um, but the same kind of uh, knowledge is lost with sourdough. Right. Okay. That's where ma magic wands come from. Magic wands were the starter stick, the stirring stick that had the microbes that started off the culture correctly. Is that's that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Sorcery. No. <laughs> Microbiome. Micro microbiology. Interesting way of thinking about the concept of magic. I like it. Yeah. Well, it it's divine, but not in the way you think. It's 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 how it was designed by nature. You know, I, I remember hearing stories that mankind invented beer because we needed a way to store some of the nutritional value of grain so it wouldn't spoil. So we learned to make beer. Maybe. And it also it also makes it um depending on the grain you use and depending on when you harvest it, it could also make it easier to di digest, you know, cause when the microbes get at it, if you get at it at the right time, it, it makes the, their metabolites are more bioavailable. It starts so, the fermentation process. Yeah. Before. Yeah. And so then that it, it crests, it peaks, you know, I mean, they talk about wines peaking all the time. It's like it reaches a certain state um, and then it's maximally nutritious, but then that state starts to degrade over time. So, you know, for every ferment, there's a peak and ancestral people would have known how to time that so that their food kept and they had a window where, you know, we might have to wait for a month, but, you know, days 27 to 34, are the best time to eat it. And they know it's going to be really good. Yeah, this is gonna be great on that. And then they're waiting and they're anticipating and they crack it open. And then, you know, I can only imagine that it'd be exciting. I, it's, it's almost hard to imagine a world without, you know, avocados in February. But, <laughs> you know, that world existed just a, just a couple of decades ago. Well, if these supply chain shortages continue, we will not have to imagine. Is well, your, I think Ahead, I think too, people are getting back to eating seasonally instead of conveniently, you know, just because the strawberries now doesn't mean that, that you should 
buy them. Yep. Well, it's also, and there's been lots and lots of weird shortages. People are just kind of cluing in. It, I think the, and a lot of movements, you know, with ancestral traditions and eating and homesteading and kind of being more self-sufficient, um, a lot of that's popping up on people's radar. And that's really encouraging. At least I hope it is. I'm not even going to ask you a dumb question like, did you plant a garden for, or are you going to plant a garden for next year? Because you're a carnivore diet guy. So we'll skip right over to that one. But uh, like, oh. <laughs> do you have, uh, is your supply chain pretty solid? Um, I don't know. You know, it really depends on these wrappers. Like we have some deals in the works that if we, if it goes our way, yeah, we're great. But uh, the world is a treacherous place for small businesses. And I'm glad it looks like we're doing awesome on social media, but it's, it's a rough business. If you want to buck the system and you want to sell something that's actually quality and you don't want to gouge anybody and you want to pay your employees a living wage, it's like, well, you're kind of picking multiple fights with the system all at the same time. So- I thought that was going to be a softball question for you because, you know, you have three ingredients on your label, but then you have your wrapper. And the that's wrapper the wrapper is key. Probably a sticking point. If you make it out of um, just cheap plastic, oxygen and moisture go right through the wrapper. And if you, uh, if you um, make it out of the wrong kind of form, you know, not all of them are food safe and half of them in there are food safe. Uh, leach harmful like BPA and plastic into the food. Well, for our ancestrally minded people, that is completely unacceptable. And rawhide bags is completely unacceptable to the health department, the USDA. So <laughs> it's like, well, you know, we got to, so we have a narrow kind of window. We can't have anything that's going to leach into the food because that's gross. And uh, that happens all the time with granola bars. We eat a bunch of cheap food that, you know, we put in containers, you know, or the Gatorade bottles, the one that I, I always hated is like what I used to play soccer when I was a kid and they'd give us Gatorade. And sometimes the Gatorade would sit out and bake in the sun and you can taste the plastic. It's like gross. It's like at a kid, I didn't care that it was unhealthy for me. I just didn't want to taste gross plastic. I wanted my blue drink to be blue. Yeah. It has so much sugar in it that, I mean, how could yeah. you taste the plastic in it under all the sugar? Yeah. Well, if you get it hot enough, it's that, it's that pet. It's the number one type of plastic. It's very, it's not heat stable. And if you reuse it over and over, it, it wears, it creates these little micro tears. There's a lot of plastic that goes into the drink. Um, we also have them in Afghanistan and they were great. Uh, well, I don't know if I want to go there, but they're great for uh, elimination, eliminating waste product. Heck yeah, you don't need to say anything more. Like, did you and guys it, have Camelbacks over there? Yes, I had one of those too. Did did it ever taste right? Yeah, after after several gallons, several several gallons, several different patrols, uh, it tasted right for a few weeks, and then. Um, then it got moldy and I think I just threw it away because I, I couldn't, I could never get it clean. Once the mold sets in, it just, it's gross. Yeah, there's I, little tubes. I kind of had the same problem too. Like 
you use it, you use it, you use it. And then it just starts to be acceptable one day and you quit tasting all the plastic. And then about two months later, the tube goes black and it's like, Oh crap, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be drinking out of this anymore. Yep. That's my experience. Exactly. Oh, so what, uh, other than wrappers and supply chains, what's, uh, what's the biggest challenge you guys are facing? Um, so we live in uncertain times and people are a little hesitant to invest in something that they see as risky. And so I have a conundrum with how I pitch the carnivore bar. It's like on one aspect, it's just a healthy food, but in another, it's also uh, everything you need to survive that's shelf stable for 25, 30 years and everything that you need to survive. So if humanity collectively had say like a bad day and you wanted to survive and the power went out, your deep freeze went out, it's like you're either a rancher or you're an involuntary, you know, vegan. So we have this horrible vulnerability where we can't store shelf-stable food that doesn't make you sick. And in an event of an emergency, um, there's not going to be modern healthcare. So we're all like hyper sick and the carnivores are a hyper vulnerable population in a hyper vulnerable uh, place. Given that our supply chains are so fragile and we don't really have a lot of alternatives, especially as carnivores, it's, it's one of those things that last April, people were like banging down my door for these things. <laughs> like whole Bitcoins, thousand, I want a thousand bars, get them to me like this week, possibly. And I had to just say no, because at a certain point, it's so finicky to make this product that you cannot, I can't make any more for any price, any price whatsoever, because it's literally ingredients for life. If there's a problem, all of those like ready-made uh, shelf-stable bucket bag tote things uh, are like 60% carbs and have very, very poor uh, vitamins and minerals. So they have almost no nutrition and they're just empty calories. Well, if you're already edging on the, on the border of sick, like you're not going to do well on that. Right. And really it's not about how it tastes. It's about how you feel. Cause you know, when we were soldiers in Afghanistan, like we felt terrible. We ate MREs and preserved food every day of the year because some people rotated back to the base. Other people got farmed out to these tiny little bases where all you had are MREs or something called the UGRE, which is like a shared crappy uh, group MRE, which is horrible. An and so, MRE, but worse. MRE, but worse and bigger. So uh, without the candy. So it, it's just you know, you have those kind of vulnerable situations and the uncertain times we live in, it's, it's hard to know like how to sell this product responsibly because I hate, I hate the media and the fear mongering and the hyperbole and the silliness. But we as a species do not have healthy food that's shelf stable. And that is a human problem not a country problem not an individual community problem but all humans so 
that's what I'm trying to solve, but I don't want to be like pushy or weird about it. It's like, this is just my thing because of the circumstances I found myself in Afghanistan. So, you know, to each their own, but uh, your garden question made me think of this. 2020, I, um, I actually bought heirloom seeds, not for me, but to trade. You know, people just don't understand that you go to a grocery store, the seed terminates. There's no future for it. Because Monsanto were, owns yeah. the genetics. And then it doesn't create more seeds. So you, you grow your, your garden, you grow your tomato, and then you don't have any seeds for the next year and you're done. So you need heirloom seeds to, to further. And, and this is another thought I had, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but ranchers, you need to, you need to keep a certain genetic uh, diversity in your herd for your herd to be genetically stable. Right. Not everyone keeps a herd big enough that if they <laughs> bred could be stable uh, long-term, like 20, 30 years. Because if, if something were to happen, you may not be able to get, uh, you know, a, a bull to get that input with. you needed to, to bring in another genetic. Yeah. And so there's this, this crazy thing where everything is just taken for granted in our society. Everything is, is hyper-efficient, extremely profitable, and hyper-fragile. And so I don't, like... Having too extreme of an opinion about that is so distasteful to me and being disrespectful of other ways of living and other, you know, opinions and, and being stressed all the time is just really unhealthy. So struggling with that kind of knowledge floating around my head has been the biggest problem because we, we need investment now, decades before there is an emergency. If we have an emergency and then get support you know i could make a million dollars selling a single bar but that's that's not what i want and it won't help me make more bars it won't help me help people and that's been kind of the theme of what i'm trying to do is like i would like to be helpful and if i'm hyperbolic or crazy like oh like <laughs> i don't think that's helpful <laughs> not not in this this environment we're in there's a lot of hyperbole on social media and it's tough not to get sucked into a lot of it. I just hate it. It's so gross. I, I just try to, I try to, I try to let myself be lifted by all the positivity and ignore the negativity, especially the haters. And you know, yeah. I, I don't mind the haters because, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, I don't mind haters because they're this close to being your biggest fan you already get to live in their head rent free <laughs> and they pay attention to everything you do. True. So I don't mind haters. Bring it on. That's, that's fine. So if you're going to start over, what's uh what's the best advice you wish you had on day one with the carnivore bar? Hmm. Like if I'm giving it to someone else or someone to, giving it to if me. You, if you were doing it over again and you were giving yourself advice on how to start over. I was afraid you might ask this question or something like this. I, I think I might say, don't do it. Ooh. 
That's interesting. Why would you say that? Um, it's just been like a horrible white knuckle ride. Um, that's actually taken a lot from my health. Like when I found the carnivore movement, I was at the top, I was at the peak, but running a business, running a small business and trying to buck all these different systems, treat my employees with respect, uh, make a profit, but not at the expense of my customer and not at the expense of my supplier. Um, trying to run an ethical company that is doing something regenerative, but also not uh, an ideology or kind of dogmatic or you know tyrannical, like, oh, this is, it's, it's one of those, you have all these intersecting axes of challenge and like the most heroic thing you can do, which is how I was raised is, you know, all of them and say, I think I might've spent more time getting my feet on the ground and self-development before I attempted something so difficult. You know, I think I wasn't optimally ready. Uh, if I'm being honest. <laughs> well, I think there's something to that. You know, if, if you wait till you're ready, you'll never be ready. That's true. That's true. But um, we effectively launched March, 2020. And oh, so yeah. perfect time to launch a product. <laughs> we and then by April we were sold out forever. And then by October we were forgot about. And so it was just like <laughs> what? <laughs> That's when, kinda... they, when they want this product, they want it now and they want it by the truckload. And what when they're not thinking about it, they're like, oh, it's a little plain. Yeah. <laughs> texture's a little you know but it's got it's gotten so much better and i'm happy about the place i'm in now and i'm glad I, I i took this journey but i think my my ethical advice would be to not do it for where i was in 2019 um but all things said and done um it has been an incredible journey i have learned a lot i've grown a lot and i think we have a, a product finally now that is that's ready for people who aren't uh, zealots, food carnivore zealots to try, because it really is just an incredibly different product now than for where it was when you tried it. I'll, I'll have to get some more. If uh, I'll send you some. Awesome. I'm looking forward send to you it. Both. You want to talk about fake meat? You it know, might be a short conversation. It's a funny story. It actually uh, originated in Columbia, Missouri, exactly where I am. Okay. Beyond Meat, at least, well, that's one of the company, um, was, I think, the Missouri Innovation um, Center, Center for Innovation or whatever. They have a bunch of scientists and um, amazing scientific equipment. And they worked with Beyond Meat to bring it to, bring it to market. And it IPO'd for $3.8 billion. So same town, I talked to the same people, the investors passed. None of their food scientists helped me. I didn't even get called back. And I raised $84,000. And the regulation for Beyond Meat is minimal 
you know, all of, all of the hassle they go to is to protecting their IP. Cause it's not um, meat. It's manufactured from chemical bullshit. Right. So I mean, it's not it, a meat product. They can't even call it. They shouldn't even legally be allowed to call it meat. Because no, it, it's profoundly unhealthy. You know, all the ingredients were chosen to mimic the taste and feel of meat, but they are not nutritionally comparable at all. And a lot of the stuff they've chosen were very, very inflammatory, but they were chosen because the, you know, the texture, the way it sizzles or the, the color of redness. It's like, Food you know, science. It's, a, it's a lot of effort, but it's not any nutrition. It's like, you'd be much better off just going to your own garden, you know, controlling the soil, create good soil, eat healthy vegetables. Like don't eat these, like these vegetable products that have been condensed and processed and, and turned into this unnatural ratio. Cause it's those ratios too. It's like when you eat a vegetable, you're getting the fiber. So you're cultivating the bacteria that eats fiber that helps you break it down. There's a strong case that if you eat vegetables, you you should grow your own and you should eat high quality vegetables that you, you know, that you routinely eat so that your body knows how to break that down. There's no surprises. You know, you're not, you're not throwing it for a loop every, every few steps, but the beyond, beyond meat is right in the, my, my backyard. I was literally across from the place. Maybe like it was down the street a little bit and then across the street uh, of where I started. Um, started the carnivore bar and it it was just surreal to see how much investing attention goes to the fake meat versus uh bringing real meat um and making it shelf stable and trying to deliver the highest quality possible nutrition that any, anyone's ever attempted to do all those guys that were that you went to ask for funding and and the scientists you went to ask for help as soon as they hear you're trying to make an all meat product I imagine all they're thinking is cows are bad. We're killing the rainforest to grow more cows. Animal agriculture is horrible. Yeah. And the, the lies from cowspiracy that have been debunked hundreds of times. Yeah. It's like, you know, you, you can tell they don't know anything about animal agriculture when they, when they say that it's, you know, cow farts. It's like the relevant literature, clear. It, it's a burp, you know, and it's a burp because they, are, are fermenting their, cellulose, which creates methanotropes, and that methane doesn't persist in the environment, and that methanotropes fix the nitrogen that create rich soils. So it's like this system was designed, you know, by nature or by God or however you you feel it was here. It was designed to work a certain way. When we pave over the prairies with suburbs. It's not working like it was designed to work. It's, you know, and we need to, we need to graze, graze our topsoil if we want to keep our topsoil and preferably rotate it and rest it because there's also some of that going on that's just not very well taken care of cattle. And that kind of gives everyone a bad name. Yeah. It, that line that we've got to graze our topsoil to keep our topsoil, that, that's, that's very well put in, you know, and that's the first time we've heard anybody say that, I think in like 42, yeah, yeah 42 episodes. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've, you know, we've had farmers already. We had Michael Thompson on here. He's one of the best farmers I know. Oh, cool. Yeah. So 
That, that's I like that. That's cool, Philip. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, we're not kicking you off yet. Okay. <laughs> it sounded like a... <laughs> no, no, we're not kicking you off yet. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of kind of getting down to the thin end of my uh, my question deck here, though. Um, hey, no, ask away. I'm I'm enjoying talking to you guys. Okay, well, here's a good one. Like, and we got to go deep for this one. Okay, you could invite over any three people alive or dead for dinner who would it be and why that's a great one (laughs) you asked for a good one i think hmm so you got to kind of think about like who do you want to talk to and then how are they going to talk to each other so that's a complicated question because it's not just like, who do you want to talk to most? It's you know, what, what the conversation, conversation do you want to be a part of? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, given that, I think I'd pick a domain that I'm interested in. Um, I think I would do uh, Jordan Peterson. So okay. he helped me a ton in 2016. Yeah. Like kind of get my head on straight, kind of get my, my focus, like try not He's to be carnivore guy, isn't he? Well, he, he certainly helped. Uh, he talked about his daughter's transition and that's how I found out about it. So, but I was not really interested really in his dietary advice. I was interested in his like, you know, this is the, this is the benefit of our culture. This is the point of Western ideas. And I was steeped in those stories as a theater major. I studied philosophy and uh, theology. And so and theater, I viewed as the applied, you know, applied application of those philosophies. Like someone puts out a philosophy, let's see how it goes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so those were the, the kind of ideas, but uh, he really kind of helped me get my, get, my, um, get my life together when I was deeply sick and I didn't know what I was gonna do with my life. So I really like the personal development stuff. I think I would talk to um, Peterson, Young, Carl Young. I don't know who he is. So um, he's a famous psychologist. Like, so he came after Freud. Freud kind of pioneered the idea of the subconscious, and there's all those like that kind of that, stuff. Yeah. Carl Young is the the scarier one who talks in vivid imagery that he has all kinds of uh, insights that he's just incredibly, incredibly gifted. And I think the last one would be uh, Nietzsche. Who? Nietzsche. Who's that? So um, Nietzsche very famously uh, said, God is dead. And uh, that's, that's most of what all everyone knows about. But he said, and no, no one will be able to, but that's not the end of the quote. It's God is dead and no one will be able to uh, quench the river of blood that follows. Like, I forget exactly how he says it, but it's like, and that's a bad thing. One of those really, <laughs> really profound, deep things. You're like, dude, what did that mean? Yeah. So, listen for two days while he explains it. Yeah. So Nietzsche is really dense, hard to understand. Carl Jung, similarly. So Nietzsche is on this philosophy side that like 
we were kind of using as a society uh, religion as the basis of like how we're doing as a moral map. And so um, he said that when we're kind of abandoning God in favor of this materialistic, progressive, you know, progress kind of thing. Um, but the 20th century with the pitfalls of communism and Nazism, it was the fascist movements. It was like, oh, wow, uh, this isn't always just progress. It, you know, it progressive, it's sometimes we, we really mess things up. And so we're kind of searching for our new narrative, you know, as a society, as a species. And so Nietzsche is like, on one hand, he kind of pointed out some of those um, horrific you know, philosophical trends. It's like, we need kind of this unifying story so we know what the good is. And, you know, and so without religion, if we abandon religion, then we're kind of lost in this uncomfortable place. And there's not a significant story. And so a lot of ideological thinking, a lot of tribalism and, and warring social media factions have kind of taken the place of people's religions. And so that's not going well, I, I don't think. On social media, it's awful. So Nietzsche is the philosopher. Carl Jung is one of the most amazing psychologists ever. And uh, Jordan Peterson is a student of both. And maybe he could help me understand some of them better. I don't know, that's my, that's my three. I think Nietzsche and Carl Jung would log into Twitter and lose their minds. I don't know. I don't know. They might. If they watched Austin Peterson's Twitter feed, they'd probably go crazy and say, what is this crap? You human beings of the future are nuts. You should never do this. This is a horrible thing. Do not engage with this this application. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, what what about you guys? What what are your three? CK, I'll let you, I'll let you tackle this one. You haven't had to answer Uh, this one yet. No, I haven't. So Elon Musk is like, you know, cool. I got a girl. I think that would be amazing. Um, and then I, I really like Julia Child. So if you guys don't know who that is, she's just like yeah. a really amazing chef who's kind of taught Americans how to master the art of French cooking. Um, so I've like learned a lot of my technical skills off of her cookbook from when I was, you know, just went away to college. I would love to do that. And I, I, I don't know what my third one would be. I still think about that all the time. I'm like, I don't even have the answer. But I do like Jordan Peterson. I actually, um, you know, I actually don't do TikTok, but, but I do watch his, that content that he makes because it's just, for me, it's like a, a really motivational way to like recalibrate, recalibrate like yeah. me. Yeah. So he just has a really good look out, look outlook on life and how to like, navigate through the chaos of, of today's chaos so what about you brian i i gotta admit that you know I, I did throw that one to you so i had to give me a minute to cheat so i could <laughs> think, think mine through because i knew it was coming my way yeah so and I, you know these the course is going to change probably every time we have the conversation right because mm-hmm. you know we, we hear new things and we think new things i think my top three choices today would be Snoop Dogg mm. because I'd want to talk to him about branding and marketing and being yourself and being your best self. I'd want to talk to Jocko Willink. Oh, yes. yeah, that's a good one. I, I want to get his, I want to get some of his leadership advice and some of his leadership knowledge. 
And then I think I want to talk to Thomas Massey, Senator from uh, Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Libertarian Great choices. Very, very like leaning libertarian uh, senator from Kentucky. Like I think I think Thomas Massey, he's involved in regenerative, like he supports regenerative agriculture. He has a cow farm. I think he actually calls it a ranch, but he's east of the Mississippi, so they're usually farms. Uh, he has he has cattle in Kentucky, and um, you know, it, last year as it, it was last fall, he had some slaughter dates, and you know, I followed along on his social media, and he was taking stuff to the slaughter dates, and he was feeling the same pain that we all were about, you know, the disparity between cattle price and box beef price, and yeah, and just not having any not having any capacity available to slaughter. So, I think having having a dinner with him. And and Jocko and Snoop Dogg, I think that'd be pretty legendary. That would be. I would want to film that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of disparate personalities there, and I think it'd be great. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know if Jocko would be down with uh, with Snoop Dogg smoking at dinner, but uh, no, and that's why I think that one step at a time. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you could set it up so your dinner's fight. It'd be great. <laughs> Invite Joe Rogan to commentate on it. <laughs> Now you're talking. <laughs> I I didn't want to invoke the name of the Podfather. Yeah. yeah. Have you heard of Peter Ballastat calling himself the Sod Father? I uh, yeah, I think I've I think I've heard that. He's uh, God, he's Australian, isn't he? You know, I don't know, but he's all about um, you know regenerative agriculture and and. Uh, grazing animals and he's agronomist I, I might be saying that wrong but he's been he was he talked to the carnivory con and and so we're he's on our radar and we're like oh cool tell us about grass and stuff he's uh if i had gone that way he would have been on a different three person panel i think fred provenza would be another really cool one to to be able to sit down pick their brain i I got to sit down and write some emails. I got to email Fred. I want to get him on the show one of these days. You know, and I was thinking, you know, earlier we kind of touched on it about the grass fed versus grain fed debate. And, yeah. you know, and you're in the, you're in the diet nutrition world and in the fitness world. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's all kinds of people arguing about keto and paleo and, and everything else. Imagine the, the vegans really don't have much of a real, really a substantive argument. But the point I'd like to make, and I had this, I was having this conversation with some friends the other day, is no matter where you fall on the regenerative spectrum, okay, no matter where you fall in the production ag spectrum, okay, your job's not going away. Like your job is only under threat because your customers are aging out. Like only a small percentage of, of customers that are actively exerting their buying power are going to change their long-term buying trends or their long-term diets, Right. So, you know, yeah, we have these CAFO models, beef, chicken, and pork. We have, you know, the rising heirloom breeds and, and the pastured and grass-finished models. Mm -hmm. okay? And those are growing, and there's no doubt that, that the pastured and grass-finished and regenerative uh, food model is growing very rapidly. The CAFO model really isn't. I mean, it, it's kind of staying static. But the point I'm making is, the new consumers were coming in. You know, those are the ones we got to focus on. You know, we got to focus on educating the next generation of consumers. And as soon as that generation is starting to exert their buying power and, and spend money in the marketplace, 
we need to be capturing these customers and making sure that they're bought into these regenerative practices that are long-term ecologically much more sustainable than the current screwed up system that, you know, that science is trying to sustain. So what I'm getting at here is like, it shouldn't necessarily be competition. It shouldn't necessarily be a lot of fighting. Yeah. We think that people aren't transitioning fast enough to our way of thinking. And I think that's, that's a basic flaw. You know, one of the basic parts of a, you know, that being a human being is you're never patient enough. You always want things to be faster and change faster. And you're never happy with what other people are doing. And you expect everybody to be happy with what you're doing. So these, these models of, commodity grain production and commodity beef production and, you know, big chicken houses and big pork houses, they're not going to go away overnight, no matter how much, you know, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren want them to. They're not going away overnight, guys. But they are going to scale down. They are going to drop back. So as, as we go forward in the future, you know, we're capturing these new consumers and we're capturing their dollars and we're educating them. And the other consumers, they're just aging out. And, you know, it, it's not its not worth fighting. I, I guess that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't even want to fight about fake meat anymore because it's not worth fighting about. Like the people that eat that crap, I, I, I know what I think is going to happen to them. Yeah. I choose not to eat it. Well, people, fortunately, whoever or whatever designed us, designed us well. They don't like it. They don't feel good. They're not doing well on fake meat. So it doesn't sell it. Uh, if it's based on sale, like, people, people don't buy it. And, yeah, their uh, profits are going down from what I saw. It's like just in the news that like fake meat, like beyond meat. And I, I just call them all fake meat, but like yep. all the fake meat companies are, they're hurting. They're reporting much lower than expected revenues and profits. And partly because the expected revenue was just hopium. It wasn't based on anything. And I agree that the KFO model um, is not going anywhere as things are right now. But I fear that the stranglehold that the slaughterhouses have uh, on the system, the cargo, JBS, National Beef, Tyson, it's like that's 80% of North America. That is a little toxic. And the those companies security issue. And those companies are investing in fake meat. So to me, the writing is a little bit on the wall when it comes to regenerative ag. It's like, and this may just be because I have a background as being a soldier that I'm thinking about long-term, you know, I'm. You I understand supply that. chains and logistics. Phil, yeah, I don't. I've always liked about you. Yeah, I don't really like the fact that I only eat one thing. It's like, I would like to have some of that like off the power grid, safe and secure. It's like, I don't really like the idea that your cow can't live without grain. It's like, it, it, you know, grain might help, it, but it shouldn't need it if it needs it. And or, or if it's just skin and bones without that grain and molasses, it's like, uh, you, you might be, you might be working with some really poor quality soil and you might not, not be managing that soil to the best of your ability. It's like, and you're, your animals might not fit your environment at all. Yeah, you might need a different breed. You might need a, a, a different kind of genetic profile that handles like the area that you're in, where it's the water or the, 
the heat. You you know you want to have a an animal that's well adjusted to your environment, and then you want to do your best to maximize that. So to me, I think about resilience. I think about national security, um, but not in a America first kind of way. Just in a like, you know, maybe an asteroid hits country X. If country Y is not affected and can help out, great. But like, you never know who's gonna have a terrible day, and it'd be better if every country could stand on its own two feet produce its own food and produce healthy food that doesn't need a lot of inputs. The way that we're globalizing everything and making it hyper fragile really gets under my skin because when that system slows down or, or starts to break, like we can't do shipping internationally anymore. It's like all those containers just sitting out in the Pacific Ocean. It's like waiting to get unloaded. No truckers to unload them, no dock workers to unload. It's like hope anything that you're waiting on isn't important you know what's not waiting on it you know what's not stuck on in shipping made in the usa oh yeah yeah stuck in a shipping container not stuck in a port the thing about made in the usa is there's hundreds of different components many of which are made in multiple different countries i think like a cell phone like it's like 67 different countries make the bits of this and then it's assembled in the, the last country it touches it it's really not representative uh, and a lot of you know th- this gets into your area again you know made in america or grass-fed beef american grass-fed beef it's like well is it packaged in america and raised in australia it's like yeah you know it's like come on guys it's a, this isn't let's be know, honest here yeah let's, be <laughs> let's honest. just be honest here yeah. where did it come from yeah. and that's always that's i always have to ask that question like any any anybody that's trying to sell me a product where does this come from exactly where do you get your where do you well i get it from factory xyz okay well that's not good enough like i want to know where it really comes from especially when it comes to food i i feel like not knowing where your food comes from is a particular problem like if you have something uh if you have like a gadget or a tool or a hammer, it doesn't really matter so much, but anything that goes in your body, anything you put on your skin, anything that's in contact with you, it's kind of, it's an intimate product, you know, food. You should know what's in it. Now, a lot of people are gonna have different levels of filters. They're like, it doesn't matter as long as it tastes good. I don't care. It's like ingredients list is like 30 pages. No problem, that's fine. but we should each make our own choice about that because if something goes wrong and you are making an informed decision, then, uh, then, you know, you, you pay the price, but if you're not making an informed decision and you're kind of trusting the system, I feel like that's where we get into this hazy, um, who's holding the bag. So like everybody, well, nobody. So then it gets dropped. It's like, and that's back to that trust the science argument. Right. Yeah, I get sick. When, and who's, whose problem is it? Who's who's to blame? It's like no one's to blame. Well, then who who helps fix me? Who helps fix my health? It's like well, well science. <laughs> malaria kills millions of soldiers. So it's not like I'm mad at the army. It's just they did their best, and their best got you know included me 
getting dysbiosis. I did not become a casualty and that's what they were concerned with. I look mostly fine. I have all my bits. So I'm You're a success. You're so combat effective. You could pick up your yeah. rifle and go to work. But, you know, a lot of our soldiers um, couldn't digest their food. They were taking chemicals to, you know, pass things through and uh, chemicals to <laughs> to stop passing things through. And then um, and then probably chemicals to sleep because they weren't sleeping well, which is illegal, which is not allowed in a combat zone. But they, we had soldiers there who didn't sleep for weeks, which is also not good for a combat zone. So it's the plan never works out. And so you should really, I think, uh, limit your risks, you know, because the plan's never going to go according to how you think it's going to go. And so maybe we shouldn't take so many risks fast and loose with, with uh, confidence in our own science and our own understanding. It's like just a, just a dash of humility could go a long way. You know what Mike Tyson says? Hmm. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and life hits hard. And so you got to be willing to be responsive and pivot and change your plan and adapt. And so if you live in living on the edge, everything's bleeding to almost failure all the time. You can't handle any adversity. Yeah, that's true. You know, it, adversity of combat, I served, I'd, I'd spent a little over eight years in the Navy, but I wasn't oh. on the, I was not boots on the ground combat. I didn't, I didn't have to pick up a gun every day and go back to work. I wasn't a fire base with people shooting at me. Like I was in a pretty relatively safe boat. Not a whole lot went wrong, but what I, what I'm interested in is how did it mess with you at all coming from the theater world of make-believe combat where you're trying to keep people safe? moving to the army and being a combat medic and trying to keep people safe, like going from like the context of doing that in a theater setting to doing that in combat. Did that, yeah. did that mess with you? It did because, um, you know, in theater, we took things more seriously. Okay. <laughs> you have to unpack that. You took things so, more seriously in theater than you did in combat. Oh, deadly seriously. You know, it was basically because this is the military, we just do whatever, you know, we, we follow the regulations most of the time until you get that one, you know, commander who just doesn't. And you're like, just worry about keeping your buddies alive. Right. Yeah. And then you get into these like toxic leadership situations where, where people are worried about their promotion and their careers and their, all these points and from like, all this gaming of the system and it's this tired old stale bureaucracy. I mean, especially the army, the army is the oldest and biggest. Navy is not any different. Okay. But it's like, everything's really stale and, and you do the bare minimum to stay safe and oftentimes fail horribly and people get hurt and that's fine because it's war. And it's like, no, this, this part wasn't war. This part was just negligence incompetence and but those people aren't held accountable like in theater or my other uh very serious organization i was in the boy scouts you know that person was relieved immediately they're gone you know people are trusting you with their kids 
you're boom, you're gone. <laughs> it's like if you are unsafe with knives or unsafe with fire, or you are belittling to a child or a boy scout, or, or, or you go off in, in a theater set and you uh, tear into someone inappropriately, or you're abusive, you're, you're toast. No one tolerates that because they don't have to. But as soon as, as soon as they, they put those shackles on and you have to do it and you can't quit. And in theory, they could literally put you up against a wall firing squad and, and execute you. You know, the military owns you. You're not a person. You don't have rights. You don't have political opinions. You are uh, a tool of the state. <laughs> you're you're and, a number uh, in a file at Milpers that gets to use a name. Yeah. Yeah. Only the last one. <laughs> Only the last one. <laughs> the first name privilege is removed. But uh, I learned a lot in the service and I appreciated it, but I realized that they were these kind of like hard brigand kind of crusty sergeants and NCOs that kind of like said all the right things and then actually got the mission done. Despite the inefficiencies in the, the BS of the system, there were these. It's like maybe one in three in the Navy. Yeah, it's like, well, there's there's one person who actually can do their job and everything rotates around them and they make the mission happen. And the longer that the army uh, kind of goes on, I feel like we're getting weaker and we're getting more bureaucratic. And because we don't have shared values and a shared narrative, like I was talking about with the philosophy, Right. Um, we don't know what the good is. We don't know what a good man is. And so oh, they, keep, they, they, for that they keep rewriting the dictionary. Well, at a certain and point, that starts it, to really break down bureaucratic systems because some of these bureaucratic systems were built with a certain society, societal norms in mind that weren't written down. So the magic formula of of it working and leadership working and mentorship. There's a little fuzzy bit that kind of is the glue that holds all these systems together. That is our culture and losing our culture means we kind of lose our bearing in this new, new map and this new paradigm. It's like, well, why would I do this heroic thing? Why would I stick my neck out? Why would I stand up and take responsibility for something that wasn't directly exactly my fault? You know, like Jocko's extreme leadership. It's like, well, why? It's like, well, you got to see the long picture. If you take responsibility, it's going to make it, it's not only going to make people want to follow you, but it's actually going to help you get through your day. It's going to give you a sense of meaning and purpose. It's going to improve you. You're going to grow as a person and then the mission will succeed. So the nation wins, you win and you're, and your platoon wins. It's like, it's win, win, win. It's like, that's why we go to the trouble of learning leadership. And it's like, well, that's not always that important to, to people anymore. Everyone doesn't believe in the system that it's just there for the college money and the paycheck and the benefits. So without that belief, um, that mar magic crusty sergeant who knows all the tricks and games and how to get the thing from supply that no one else can get, that person retires. He doesn't get replaced. There's no replacement. And so that, that linchpin who's holding the old cultures and the old ways together and making the bureaucratic system 
uh, eke through and, and get to the next year. Um, that's starting to grind to a halt. And that's happening in many, many different industries. Uh, and at least in my experience, it sounds like you had a similar experience in the Navy. It's, I think that's just the nature of, of complex bureaucracies. Mm. And the longer they exist, the more rules get piled on top of each other and pile on top of each other and nothing ever gets, there's never a bottom up review yeah. of everything. So they just keep piling things on, on the bottom of a shaky pyramid that, like you said, maybe wasn't ever written down because it was just understood at the time that those traditions yes. were founded, that this is how society was. This is how shit operated. And this is what we're going to do. And they built off of that. They built off of a foundation that they didn't necessarily write down, whether that's a good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent. We're not here to debate that, but we piled so much crap on top of the foundation and it's gone so far outside the bounds of what that foundation can morally support that we see these bureaucratic institutions are starting to creak and crumble from and rot from within because the people that know how to navigate the bureaucracy are the ones that rise to the top. Yep. And, and it's, it's not the ones there, Yeah. It's not the ones that are there to be on mission that rise to the top. <laughs> it's the ones that know how to navigate bureaucracy. And yeah. Fear like they're on mission. Yeah, it, it's the people who play the right game who never make mistakes. Like, um, I heard talking about like officers who gets promoted. Actually, I was listening to Jocko. Jocko said, um, you know, here are all these accomplishments. You are not rewarded as a leader for taking risks, which you'd want. I mean, zero risk is not the right amount of risk for a leader to take. Right. Unless you're going up to a review board. So, which is a paradox because, you know, the way they rate the system, it's like, well, you made a mistake and why'd you do that? You're a bad leader. Like this guy, this other guy is all the same qualifications, didn't make a mistake. It's like, because he played it safe. And so the people at the top are like the most milquetoast, cautious, um, definitely saying the right thing, definitely not doing the right thing because doing the right thing is hard. Uh, you will make mistakes. You will make yourself vulnerable. You will put yourself out there. And when you do that and you're not perfect, you get nailed to the wall. And so we're actively discouraging uh, the qualities we need to make our society run. I agree. And like, How do we fix it? Well, <laughs> Philip, I'm going to put you in charge of what <laughs> you need to be in charge of and give you all the power. I think it? that's the first mistake right there. <laughs> I'm going to, that's my first job on duty is I'm going to hire someone qualified. <laughs> hire, job one, hire somebody smarter than me to do this job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to spend all of my time looking for someone better, but um, good answer. <laughs> on, my, on my personal note, you know, what am I doing is, is I, I think that I want to be really encouraging to regenerative agriculture. I think that it is likely that our civilization collapses sometime in my lifetime. I, I don't I think that's right. I don't know the future, but I, I don't see these systems that are abusive, caustic, toxic, um, you know, just unpleasant. They're unpleasant to be in charge of, they're unpleasant to endure and I just don't see them lasting. I see a lot of financial games being played. It's just going to come crashing down. I think if we have a robust 
regenerative agriculture community, we can rebuild. You know, but I think human beings are the kind of the kind of animal that's got to feel a little pain before it thinks about changing what it's doing. And so that means this system that's so complicated, we won't see the pain until it collapses. Because there are thousands of different signs, different uh, supply chain issues, different kind of political issues, um, polarization that, you know, the hyperbolic stuff that I'm trying to avoid even, <laughs> even getting anywhere near. Um, I think that that is going to, it's not going to last. And so when it doesn't last, we're not going to see it coming and it's going to hit us. People like don't know how mouth. fragile power grid is. The power, the internet, the water, uh, sewer, the streets, like everything that just the trash, you put trash outside and just goes away by magic, like fairies, just take it into the distance. It's, it's gone. It's like in Afghanistan, every single piece of trash we burned by hand you know every single bottle of water we drank we had to lift first into the connects you know every single thing we ate we had to lift every bullet we didn't fire a lot <laughs> mostly just at, at dumb stuff but we carried them you know no one brought them there we brought them there and so guard duty us Staying up all night, watching nothing. It's like, yeah, it's like when you have to be self-reliant and you you have these military experiences, you know, it, it kind of like, huh, you know, who does all these things that are just magic and wonderful? I turn on the light switch and boom, instant power. It's like someone's burning a little more coal because I turned on this light switch. And somehow that's all calculated and the transformer doesn't explode. And the science behind it is insane. And people take that for granted. I don't know how that's going to go, but, you know, and, it's concerning. And we walk around with these supercomputers in our pockets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 2021. Everybody's got a smartphone. It's, it's a supercomputer compared to anything that was available 20 years ago. It's got a camera on it that's better than anything that was available 20 years ago. And they had it, they had it in the stand. I, one of my missions was 12 hours on, 12 hours off, guard the cell phone tower because people are going to blow it up. Taliban wants to blow up and disrupt communications. Um, I don't know how credible that threat is. We never faced enemy action on that mission. Um, we mostly just... Well, they didn't um, blow up the cell phone tower because you were there guarding it, soldier. <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, you know, they would have a tiny little solar panel and they would charge their cell phone and they would charge their little radio. They had no power, they had no running water, they had no food, they, well, they had a goat. So they did have some food, but like, you know, cut, eat, eat, they probably sold it and then bought heroin with it. You know, it was like one of those kind of things. It was, it was rough, these are rough places and we brought them water, we drilled them wells, but they would take like, I saw this kid, it just, it's this shocking image of a kid drinking out of a uh, oil can. Just a plastic bottle because plastic bottle, he didn't have a cup. There were no dishes. And so he had this like yellow oil can 
he rinsed it out, presumably, and was drinking water out of it. Unsupervised, of course, in a mud hut that had a solar panel, um, a radio so that they could listen to their, their religious um, songs and texts, and, uh, and a cell phone. No running water, no food, no infrastructure to speak of, nothing, nothing going for them except for the little wheat field. We gave them wheat, and they were sowing it by hand instead of opium. It's the economic equivalent of like, you know, Flintstone carting your way across America. It's like, you know, the profit you want, potential per acre from opium versus wheat. I imagine. I don't have any first-hand experience growing opium, but I know some guys that grow wheat, and I know it's kind of a low-margin operation. I can imagine opium is a little bit better. We had, we had, uh, I watched a half a, I'd say actually like a third of a football field, size field. Third of a football field is right in front of my uh, guard tower. I watched this guy plant wheat and harvest it by hand. He had uh, a six-year-old assistant, and he spent all day, every day, on his hands and knees, sowing wheat seed. And his return on that was like, maybe, you know, $50 for the, the wheat that he was able to raise. And he worked a whole year on it. And it was like, dude, that is not going to work. When we leave and stop giving him free wheat seed. He's going to plant opium. It's like... And I don't blame them. This is so hard work. Like I, I just sat there watching, you know, waiting for the ground to blow up and it didn't, but it is such brutal work creating food and cows and ruminants are just absolutely amazing at it. The kind of health and the kind of strength, intelligence and fertility you can get from animal products versus plant products and the amount of effort it takes and machinery and technology is just it's night and day animal agriculture especially regenerative is just tactically practically and like regeneratively like future proof um the only way to go because topsoil it, it takes like a thousand years to grow 11 centimeters it's never gonna come back on its own if we don't help it that's right that's absolutely right well, we're, we're bumping up on two hours. Yep. I'd love to keep going, but I'm, I'm a one man show here at the house today and I got to take care of my chickens before dark. Hey, cool. That is, that is a beautiful reason. Ed. Yeah. So chickens uh, are <laughs> social media, where can we find you on social media? You got Instagram, Twitter, where you at? Carnivore bar, um, carnivore bar website. And it's just, carnivorebar.com uh, and on Instagram as the carnivore bar. So we're pretty easy to find. We don't post a ton because we're busy making meat bars. Okay. You on Twitter? Uh, no. I mean, I guess the carnivore bar like retweets the thing on Instagram. But, but you're not, that's, I, I did that on Twitter for a long time. Twitter's Twitter's an interesting place. <laughs> if you want to reach me, Philip Meese on Facebook, you reached out on Facebook. Facebook is a great way to reach me if you want to talk to me. Okay. I'll make sure we get all those links in the show notes. Um, anything you want to add? Anything I forgot to ask? It was a real pleasure, Brian. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I got to talk with you. 
Yeah, it's been awesome, Phil. It's been been great to catch up. And and like I said, uh, when that box showed up back in January, February, I wasn't expecting. I'm like, what's this? This is odd. I open it up. Like, <laughs> oh, carnivore bar. Shit. I'm like scrolling through my bank account. I'm like, did I send him more money? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I just, I was sending I it to you. Uh, you. You were curious about it. I think I'm, I forgot I didn't have any samples or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'll just send you a box. I, I probably harassed you on social media or something. Sounds like <laughs> I'm do. we'll have to get, get you some new ones. See what you think. I'm looking forward to and uh, offline. I'll, I'll shoot you CK's address so you can get some up to her too. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, Philip. And uh, well, CK, she had to leave a half hour ago. We didn't make a big deal out of it. But she had to jump off and make another call half hour ago. So she did a, she did an Irish exit, you know, that's, Kind of like just wave from the corner and then dart to the door. <laughs> cool. So, well, Philip, thank you for joining me today. It's been an absolute blast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, gang. Have a great week. We'll see you later. See ya.